Welcome to The Riff, where writer and investor Bern Hobart and I discuss the major inflection points caused by technological change. Our weekly conversation covers the obvious and not so obvious ways in which markets and businesses will adapt as a result. Let's jump right in. Brad, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us on the on the riff today. Really excited to to do a deep dive in all things uh, real estate, prop tech, and thesis driven. Yeah, really excited to to get started. Let's go. So, by way of background, just for the audience, Brad, you you started General Assembly, you started Common, and now you started Thesis Driven. Why don't you give the audience a brief tour of kind of the different real estate trends that you've uh, you've chased or pursued or hypotheses you've explored in in your career and and uh, what you're most excited about now in 2024. Yeah, totally. So it's a it's a big question. I've been kind of at the intersection of technology and the built world for uh, I guess 15 years now. Uh, back in 2010, I started a business called General Assembly, um, which was a brick and mortar trade school focused on skills in technology and design. Um, built that over a number of years. Was acquired in 2018 by Adeco Group. Um, it's a great outcome for everybody. And since then, I've been really focused on solving a lot of problems in housing. I mean, when you run a school, you see the housing problem very firsthand. And not just our students, but our instructors and our employees. So we started building in common starting in 2015, housing for people who live with roommates. I mean, 25 million Americans live with roommates. We just need more affordable housing in the country. Writ large built that, uh, ran that for seven years. Um, left about a year and a half ago, um, brought in an awesome CEO to keep growing that business. And, you know, I've just been very passionate about new models in real estate, how I, I don't think there's enough innovation in the built world. I think we should be building magical things given, you know, the richness that we have, given the technology that we have. So I, every, you know, a few times a week at Thesis Driven and now, uh, again, with the Thesis Driven Leader Series podcast, uh, which we're doing through Turpentine, um, we've been focusing on these really interesting novel models in the built world. Uh, what are people out there doing that you may not expect, that you may not read about in the real estate trade press, the Wall Street Journal, what have you, and actually interviewing the people building really exciting things? So, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a couple of thoughts of, of things I've been very focused on lately. Um, one theme that I just gets me really excited personally is this idea of building new cities. Um, we've kind of forgotten how to build new cities. Um, not many people do it, at least not in the United States anymore. You see some models in, in, in the developing world, but that, that's, that's a very different thing. So I've profiled a handful of entrepreneurs. I actually just interviewed one uh, this past weekend. Uh, a guy named Jan Schrammek, who is trying to build a new city outside San Francisco in Solano County. Um, and he, he wants it to eventually contain 400,000 people, which would make it one of the largest cities in the state of California. And he's raised the money to do this. He's raised it from Mark Andreessen, from the Collison brothers, from uh, Lorraine Powell Jobs, some like really great investors. So he has a big uh, question mark ahead of him in terms of a ballot initiative he has to win in Solano County, but it was really fascinating to uh, to get his take. And um, that show is uh, is 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 coming out very very soon, uh, given it's very timely right now. Um, another trend I'm very interested in is new financing models for innovative brick and mortar concepts. Um, 
it's a real problem in the sector today. How do you get these concepts funded? Because on one hand, you have venture capital, which doesn't really work well with brick and mortar models. You know, the growth rates, I, I certainly learned this firsthand, uh, building a venture backed brick and mortar business. The, the, the growth rates you need are very, very tough to do, especially if you are a product brand driven brick and mortar concept. Very, very tough. But there's nothing historically really between that and going to get a bank loan, which requires years of profitability and very difficult. And it's, it's, it's not a great option for a lot of entrepreneurs. So I've been really interested in, in, in interviewing a number of people creating new financial models um, that are ways entrepreneurs building new real estate concepts can get funded. So the first episode that just came out uh, of the Thesis Driven Leader Series podcast featured Rhett Bennett and Moses Kagan, who are starting something called Reseed. Reseed is an accelerator program for people in real estate, like real estate developers. It's taking a lot of concepts of Y Combinator, maybe a little bit of on deck, and saying, how do we adapt these models for the real estate world? So a lot of exciting things happening in the built world right now. And, um, you know, it's been a, been a passion of mine to, uh, to feature them for the past uh, 18 months now. Nice. nice. So, um, so one thing first, I, um, I was actually a general assembly instructor um, briefly in, I think, 2011. And it was, it was fun. It was, a, you know, it was, it was a really interesting model. met a lot of interesting people. And um, I really enjoyed it. So um, definitely, definitely like the concept. Like one thing I'm, I'm curious about in general in real estate is it sometimes... Sometimes I feel like you have these huge, this, you know, huge amount of freedom to experiment with things because, you know, any given space, subject to zoning restrictions, you could put just about anything there. And then it also, at some level, it also feels like you're, you're buying square feet and then you're hoping that they get marked up or, you know, hoping you, you can get a better return on those than what you're paying on your debt. And so it's like, just, you know, it, it sometimes feels like the great real estate fortunes are just from accidentally timing interest rates really well. So, you know, if you bought a bunch of, apartment complexes with a lot of leverage in the 70s, your your debt got inflated away and then the building depreciated and so you did really well. And then if you levered up to buy at the wrong time, then things got really bad. So like, you know, how do you how do you think about whether like how how blank the, like how big the canvas is, how many, how how broad the palette is, et cetera. And then like maybe to make it more concrete, when when you think about any given piece of real estate, there's sort of like the stuff that is for the standard use case. So like an apartment building has apartments and then there are the amenities. And it feels like at one level, the amenities can be this, this hugely valuable trade-off where you turn, you know, 2% of your space into a gym and your rents go up 10%. And so suddenly you have a much, much nicer building, but then it also sort of feels like maybe that the opportunity cost of that space is actually so painfully high that you can't really do that and just need more, more space for the thing that generates revenue. So are people like, how do you think about the amenities piece of things? How is that changing? You know, post COVID, maybe people are more, more ge geographically distributed. Maybe um, office buildings have to have some really compelling reason that people would show up more often. How, how is that changing? A lot, a lot of things in there. Uh, let's, let's take them apart. I think one point that is really important to get across is that real estate is incredibly broad space. And there are a lot of ways to do real estate. I mean, real estate includes everything from your buddy who 
dropped out of high school and is now flipping houses to Heinz building institutional grade shiny glass office buildings in 70 countries worldwide and rain and raising money from sovereign wealth funds and pensions and et cetera. That's all in the same industry. So there's a lot of ways to do real estate. Well, I would say there's this, this, this idea that I think is a misnomer that real estate is less risky than tech. It's all about how you do it. You can do real estate in a very safe, long-term build slowly over time way, you can do real estate in a way that's basically like flying to Vegas and sitting at a blackjack table for 48 hours. So, and a lot of that comes down to leverage, comes down to how much debt are you taking on to do your real estate projects. And there's no right answer. I mean, fortunes have been built and lost uh, in, 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 in both ways to some extent. Um, but I'll give you a couple examples. So like, obviously, a lot of people in real estate just think about timing markets. Like, can I get in at, you know, this price, this cap rate? And, you know, over time, interest rates are going to decline. Like, you know, I'm just going to be on the right side of history in terms of this particular area. And in five, seven years, I'm 10 years, I'm going to exit. Or in 25 years, I'm going to pass this thing down to my kids. Um. It doesn't have to be that that way, though. Some of my favorite real estate developers are consider themselves to be placemakers. And you don't have to be going off and building a new city. You don't have to be on Shramak to be a placemaker. Um, so give you some examples. Jed Walentis, uh, one of the greatest real estate developers in New York City in the 1980s, started buying buildings in this old industrial neighborhood on the waterfront of Brooklyn. And back then the neighborhood was called Vinegar Hill. And nobody really cared about it. It was like it was a lot of vacant industrial buildings. It was right by the Navy Yard. It was not easy to get to. Um and what he did is he basically gave away space. He gave it away to a lot of ad agencies, gave away all the retail space. If you're willing to set up a cool restaurant in this Vinegar Hill neighborhood, um you could you could take space. Um, and he bought a lot of buildings there. So he had a, a owned a decent chunk of the neighborhood. Um, he rebranded the neighborhood is another thing he did. Um, he, uh, it was under the Manhattan Bridge. So he called it down under the Manhattan Bridge overpass or Dumbo. Um, today, Dumbo has probably the highest rents in Brooklyn, certainly on office, the highest rents in Brooklyn. Um, and is one of the trendiest neighborhoods in New York City. So, and he's, and Jed Walentis, the Walentis family, they're, they're billionaires now because of this bet. And yeah, they got lucky. I mean, New York at the time when they started buying real estate was not that far removed from literal bankruptcy. Uh, the city went bankrupt. Um, crime was really high. The subways were not particularly usable. And for a, bu a bunch of reasons, all that reversed. It reversed on a national scale, and it certainly reversed in New York. And so they got lucky. But they also made a lot of bets that accelerated the development of Dumbo versus other similar areas. And so it accelerated past, you know, at the time, places like Jersey City, even the Lower East Side, that could have easily had those similar dynamics. So, so it's a little bit of push and pull in the real estate space. Yeah, so the, the fun of Dumbo is really interesting because it did. So I was in New York from 2006 to 2020, and it did seem like periodically 
neighborhoods, like new fictional, quasi-fictional neighborhoods would emerge or just be like, these four blocks are now Nomad and Nomad did not exist before, but now it's a thing. And then Nomad just keeps expanding because like anytime you have this valuation gap between what is, is it better to live in Nomad than Flatiron, which of those is, is more trendy, then the trendy one wins if a block is like, could be, could be one, could be the other. And then with, um, with other neighborhoods, you sort of had this happen with gentrification, where if a neighborhood is just synonymous with you probably do not want to rent there, then there will be an adjacent neighborhood that starts expanding because its mind share is actually lower. Um, so how much like is that a New York specific thing or is that something that people have been doing just everywhere where you you buy some you buy some land, you do actually try to like change the the mix of stores there and then you give it a new name and then you you have set all of the salient word associations with that name. It is it is a very tried and true strategy in real estate across the board. So no, this is something people in real estate do across the board. I would say the New York dynamic that both makes it somewhat unique as well as uh, somewhat controversial in many cases for good reason is you know there's not a lot of greenfield development in New York, so usually when you're going in and like remaking a neighborhood, often there are existing people in that neighborhood getting priced out. And that's a problem. And that's a problem New York has faced for a long time and, 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 and will continue to face. The good part of that was it was largely an industrial neighborhood. There were not a lot of existing residents in Dumbo when the Walentis brothers came in. Um, and in a lot of other cities, you're doing greenfield development. You're going in and, and, and building where nothing existed before, which obviously has its own problems. Um, you know, you're going in what Jan Schramek is doing in Solano County. You know, one of my urbanist friends called him a climate arsonist on Twitter. And I asked him, and you'll hear his response on the podcast, like uh, how he responds to being called a climate arsonist. So it's, you know, a lot of real estate developers will throw up their hands and say like, you know, there's, there's, there's no winning here. You go into an existing area, you're a gentrifier. You go into a new area, you're a climate arsonist. But at the same time, we, we need more housing. You know, we have a shortage of, depending on who you ask, between three and 10 million housing units in the United States. So it's, uh, it's an interesting uh, industry insofar as, you know, you have those different kind of ethical and in many cases, legal dynamics. Hey, everybody. Eric here with a word from our sponsors. The tech world turns to the Brave browser for its unbeatable privacy protections. But did you know that Brave also has a private ad platform? Brave Ads offers first-party targeting, and it's been cookie-less since day one, so you can relax while third-party tracking cookies disappear from the web. Today, millions of people turn to ad blockers to avoid being tracked and pestered online. But Brave's new ad model aligns incentives for users and advertisers. Users earn rewards for viewing ads, which they can save, spend, or pass along to their favorite creators. And advertisers score points for respecting user privacy, generating ROI without invasive tracking. So whether it's high-impact announcements on the new tab page or keyword-targeted ads in Brave Search, Brave offers diverse, private, future-proof ad formats for all your business goals. Join the future of advertising at brave.com slash ads. Mention MOZ when signing up for a 25% discount on your first campaign. It's interesting to contrast it with tech because the more, a lot of the outlier returns in tech are from either 
take it, creating an entirely new category, or at least redefining a category in such a way that it's clearly more monetizable and then dominated the category. So, you know, Apple didn't invent the first MP3 player, but they did create a product that was just synonymous with MP3 players. Um, similar for the the PC, they weren't they weren't first; they were just best at the right time. And then with real estate, like everything is always spoken for, and so you sort of you like every plot of land is presumably owned by somebody, and so you're always buying from a willing seller. Like there's no new, well, I, I mean, unless you count something like sea setting or you know going to Mars. But other than that, it's like you're generally buying something that belongs to somebody else and then trying to make it worth more or trying to find somebody who's going to sell it to you for less than it's worth. Well, I would say that the probably the closest analogy between being on those that front those front lines of a new type of technology, a new category in the tech world would be the the cap rate compression play in real estate, which a lot of really innovative real estate entrepreneurs have done tremendously well on. And what that means is you basically get in an asset type and build a portfolio of that asset type before people recognize what it is. And when people see it as riskier than it really is based on its fundamentals. So great example of this that really happened over the past 20 years is student housing. So student housing, even just 15 years ago, was like, what is this? Are you rolling up a bunch of triple deckers in Boston? And like, that seems really risky. These kids are going to wreck the place. Like, what are you doing? They're not going to pay rent. They don't have any income. How do you underwrite this? And, you know, institutional investors would lose their mind over student housing. So what that meant is if you were a smart investor, you could go buy student housing assets or build student housing pretty cheap. Like, you know, you could buy it. I mean, quick real estate math. Very, very high level way to, that real estate gets valued is something called a cap rate. A cap rate is just a ratio of the amount of income an asset produces every year to the price of that asset. It's basically yield. So the lower the yield, the higher the price that you're paying as a multiple of the cash flow you're getting off that asset every year. So 15 years ago, student housing was trading for very high yields. So you could basically go buy a student housing asset that was throwing off $10 in cash every year for $100. It'd be a 10 cap. Then people started realizing student housing is not actually that risky. You know, if it's in the right location near a university, um, students are going to be there. And oh, by the way, students pay their rent or their parents pay the rent. And so it's actually a very reliable asset. And investors actually looked at the seasoning over 10 years and said, oh, wait, the returns on this stuff are really predictable. So Blackstone then and the big institutions said, great, we're going to plow $50 billion, crazy numbers, into student housing. And the way you do that is you bid up the existing assets. And that drives down the yield, drives down the cap rate. And if you're holding a big student housing portfolio because you were smart 15 years ago, you did really well off those sales over the past five years. And that is how, you know, you're either Jed Walentis and you're making a new neighborhood or you are early in student housing, early in data centers, 
early in cold storage, early in self-storage. Those are all categories that went from the real estate hinterlands 15 years ago to front and center, highly in-demand asset classes today. Which raises an interesting question, right? So if you, I, I don't know what the cap rate on student housing is now, like what's a reasonable number to think about now? Today, seven. Seven. Okay. So like, let's say I'm Blackstone and I've been buying student housing and I started buying at a 10 cap rate and now it's a seven cap rate and I paid eight and a half. And so I have this nice capital appreciation. It did a tour through a four cap okay. because- if you had asked me 18 months ago, it would have been like, yeah, four, four and a half would be a good student housing price. But uh, rates have gone up. Right. Yeah, rates up. And maybe maybe there's more uncertainty around, you know, how many people will actually be physically living near a school, how many people will be going to school, et cetera. But yeah, guys, so what I'm getting at is like, if there is this huge amount of buying and it is, it's an imperfectly liquid market and you can't really short it. I guess you could short like a student housing REIT, but you know, you can't, you can't short student housing as a category. So it, it raises that possibility that part of the performance, part of the outperformance comes from just more money flowing in. And then you could end up with this problem where someone is underwriting their investment by saying, well, it's a seven cap, but we also know that housing, like the, the prices have appreciated five points a year. So it's really a 12% return. And that's actually better than 10, you know, 10 cap and no appreciation, or you know, it's, it's the same return as 10 cap plus 2% appreciation slash 2% increase in, in rents. And so I guess you could... You know, it, it becomes somewhat vulnerable to to extrapolations. I'm wondering if you like how do people how do people in this space think about about that and like trendy asset classes and valuations getting out of whack, or is it is it more like people are always comparing should I buy more student housing or should I do you know warehouses and data centers yeah. and something else? So this is a great question, and there's really two separate points there. One is about conflating yield and IRR. And the problem with conflating yield and IRR is yield is very easy. You can eat yield. You can't eat IRR. IRR is dependent on a future valuation of the property at some point in the future. So you have to make an estimate of what your exit cap rate is going to be. So what multiple are people willing to pay for this asset in three, five, seven years, whatever my hold period is? And one big mistake that I see, particularly retail real estate investors make a lot, is they get a pro forma. They get a, 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 a basically a proposal from someone raising money for a real estate deal. And they look at the IRR and they're like, oh, wow, this is a 20 IRR. This looks great. And they don't pay attention to the fact that a majority of that IRR might be coming from exit cap compression meaning the GP is estimating that the exit cap is going to be lower in seven years and is today. The GP has no control over that. That is just purely a macroeconomic guess, and it might be right, and it might be well-informed, and it might just be wrong. It might just be something they pulled out of wherever. And so that's one big problem and something I, I caution a lot of real estate investors to watch out for when they look at pro formas. Um, the second is... Uh, a little bit more abstract, and it's this question of flows. So in 2021, apartment prices got bid up to the moon. I'm not talking about condos. I'm talking about someone wanting to buy a 200-unit multifamily building in Phoenix. Got bid up to the moon. And 
anyone individual out there looking to underwrite these deals, looking to buy apartments is like, this makes no sense. A lot of these properties had negative leverage, meaning basically the day you buy the property, it's cash flow negative. You're paying more out the door to service your loan and your operating expenses that's bringing in like that. That makes no sense to most people. But what it was and the driver of that was a lot of institutional investors got spooked by the office category. And if you are an institution with, say, 100 billion, pick a number, it's a small institution, but say you have 100 billion in real estate assets under management and you are, you know, let's just pick and make the numbers easy, 60, 40 office multifamily. COVID hits and you're like, oh my gosh, we have way too much office. We need to rebalance away from office toward multifamily. So that basically means we're going to sell our office assets and we are going to plow 20 billion into multifamily. And so there was a huge run up in multifamily pricing just because you know you're not buying if you're an institution that's allocating 20 billion into multifamily you're not buying on a cap rate. You're not buying for an unlevered yield on cost. You just got to put 20 billion into multifamily because you believe in that category. And that drove a lot of the the bid up and, you know, frankly, made a lot of multifamily owners pretty wealthy in that period. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I could see I could see people kind of chasing, chasing interesting themes and potentially potentially getting burned there. Um, and actually, I'm, I'm curious on on that. Well, let's uh, I'll dive back for a second. So so I think one of the other things on this this liquidity inflows question is just um, question of can you can you get a reasonable price on or can you can you reasonably talk about the market value of distressed real estate categories? So office, for example, like sometimes sometimes transactions go through and they're surprisingly low numbers, but then transactions that don't happen, you know, maybe something is still held on the books at whatever whatever book value was. Um, so does the market does the market break down when prices have gone down so much that nobody, you know, the lenders really don't want it sold because they won't get all the money back. The the owner, as long as the lender isn't making them sell, wants to just hold on and see if it comes back. Like, does that does that break markets in interesting ways? What resolves that? Um, or is that not not as big a factor as you might think from the outside? It's a big factor right now. And the term that's used in real estate is extend and pretend which is there's a lot of there are a lot of buildings particularly office buildings but some multifamily as well and some other classes where the equity is out of the money now the asset value is probably less than the value of the debt and normally what would happen is the lender would just take the keys back meaning take over control of the property and sell it to someone else. That's generally not happening for a few reasons, at least in office. Um, the main one is that it's not actually in either party's interest to go through with that foreclosure event. For an owner, obviously, you know, they're they're done. If they hand the keys back, they've lost their asset, they've lost any equity value. They have to have a very hard conversation with their investors if they have any. Um, but it's also sort of not in the lender's best interest as well. One is they don't want to have to figure out what to do with this 
60% occupied office asset. And they're also under a lot of regulatory pressure. Um, that's the really important thing to keep in mind is that the lenders are not as worried about their shareholders as they are their regulators. And this is especially true since uh, First Republic and Silicon Valley Bank's failure early last year. And it's becoming true once again. You just saw, um, you know, New York Community Bank. Now, that's a little bit of a unique situation about, you know, rent stabilized assets in New York, which we've we've written about a lot on Thesis Driven. Um, but these banks are terrified of this idea that they're going to foreclose on a lot of their loans. The real value of their books will be exposed. And they're going to suffer the same fate as some of these other mid-sized banks and lenders. So there's really like an incentive for all sides of the transactions to just kick the can down the road, hope interest rates go back down, and pretend nothing's wrong. So that's the extend and pretend and why everyone talks about this like wall of maturities in commercial real estate that all these, you know, loans are going to come due or start floating. And yes, that's true. If you look a year out, it looks really, really scary, but it's looked really scary for 24 months now. And the can just keeps getting kicked down the road. And it's, it's sort of bad for cities because the best thing, if I'm the mayor of some struggling downtown trying to get people back to come to downtown is reset these prices get a new owner in who's going to drop rents 50% and maybe someone will take them up. But that's not happening. It's not happened yet, at least. Yeah, it sort of looks like you can look at regional examples of that. So, you know, Houston office real estate after an energy bust where there's a while where, yeah, everyone's extended pretend. And then at some point, banks start failing and you just can't keep the loans on the books at 100 cents on the dollar. And so things get restructured. And, you know, they're like, it, it tends to, it tends to set up an environment where you have cascading failures, where every time there is a sudden liquidation, it gets harder and harder to say, no, that building sold at 30 cents on the dollar. And this one that I bought the same year at, you know, at the same valuation is still doing just fine. Um, do you like, is that something that you think gets just resolved because growth heals all wounds? And as long as we have, you know, another we have like 10 years of 2% real GDP growth that eventually everyone gets de facto bailed out? Or is it the kind of thing where, yeah, we actually hit a maturity wall, a bunch of loans just don't get, like a bunch of loans default and um, a bunch of banks get hit from that and then everything has to get restructured? I don't think a lot of these owners are coming back from this. Certainly like multifamily. So you have this situation in multifamily too, and I want to contrast multifamily residential versus office. So multifamily residential, you have properties that operationally are fine. They're 97% occupied. Rent growth is good. Like they just were bought for way too high of a price and over levered. And a lot of that happened in 2020 and 2021. Those owners will feel some pain. Some of them are going to get wiped out. But ultimately, that's fine. Like if they can extend for long enough... They can probably grow into it. We have a housing shortage. Rents are going to continue going up with obviously some exceptions, some markets more than others. But there's no operational distress there. You have some of these office assets where you have a real secular problem of nobody wants the product. And I'm going to distinguish within office 
the New York City problem versus the Dayton, Ohio problem. The New York City problem, you just need to reset rents. And it's going to take a while for those rents to reset. And existing owners, existing equity are going to get wiped out. New owners are going to come in. I mean, when I started General Assembly, we rented space at 20th and Broadway, 16,000 square feet for $29 per square foot per year. In 2019, that space would have rented for $85 per square foot per year. So it's been a tremendous run-up in office rents. And if those rents in 2010, 2009 had been $85 per foot per year, we would not have started General Assembly. No way. So I do think there is some equilibrium in New York City where the building still makes financial sense and new users, whether they're traditional office users or new uses like General Assembly or experiential concepts, pickleball courts, I don't know. There is an equilibrium that makes sense and is good for the city. That's different than the Dayton, Ohio problem, where literally nobody wants this space. And there is no user that is willing to pay a number that would allow the building to continue paying its operating expenses. That is a very different and much darker problem. And I don't know how that is going to get solved, but it's not going to be pretty. One of the things that comes up a lot is um, the the idea of we'll just switch this from an office building to residential. How do you think about the the cost there and trade offs? Like, is it is it much harder than you would expect? I guess you have to install you know a lot more plumbing fixtures and things and kitchens and stuff like that. So like, is, like how hard is that? Is that something you've looked at? Yeah. So actually, our first ever thesis driven newsletter was focused on office to residential, and the reason I made that our first one because I thought I thought it was the quintessential example of one of these real estate categories that a lot of people talk about in the abstract, but nobody was actually calling up the developers who had done it. And there are developers who have really done this and some that have built their careers converting office buildings to residential and said, how did you do it? How much did it cost? What were the initial mistakes you made? What did you learn? And where does this work and where does it not work? So I called up a bunch of those people and featured four or five of them in the newsletter. And, you know, it is hard and it does not work everywhere, converting an office building to residential. And there's a few core problems. You named one of them, which is an office building has very different mechanical needs than a residential building. You know, residential buildings need way more electric, way more water. They need different HVAC systems like in an office typically. You know, there is one system that controls the HVAC to the entire building. I mean, that doesn't work in residential. So you're rebuilding the entire HVAC system. But the biggest problem is the layout of the office building. You know, the typical mid-century to 1990s office building has a big fat floor plate. And around the edges, you have conference rooms, executive offices, etc. And then you have this big unlit core where you know, most people work in cubicles. Well, that doesn't work for residential. I mean, in most cities, you have rules that say every room needs a window to the outside and that window needs to be openable. And even if like some markets like DC have don't have that rule, but even then, you know, you can only use so many windowless rooms. You can only have so many home offices or nurseries or whatever you know, pool rooms or game rooms, whatever. So then you've got this big unlit core, you got to do something with it. And, 
even if it's common area, you can only have so many laundry facilities and game rooms and shared kitchens. I mean, we live, we works residential brand did this to two office buildings. Common actually manages one of them in Crystal City, Virginia. And there is, there is a lot of what they call in real estate loss factor. Those are basically square foot, square footage you can't rent. Um, and that's really, really painful and makes it very tough to make these projects work. So I do think we will get some of these conversions on the margins. Weirdly, like older office buildings, stuff from the 1920s, 1930s actually works really well because the floor plates are much thinner. Ironically, a lot of those buildings are in places like Dayton, Ohio, like Pittsburgh, like these Rust Belt cities where they built a lot of office in the, in, uh, the first half of the 20th century. Residential rents are also really low in a lot of those cities. So not a lot of overlap that makes it work, sadly. Got it. So like, is, do you feel like there is this just long-term structural shift where we don't, we don't need like a business-centric downtown or, or did the shift go the other way where you actually need an amenity-centric downtown? Because if everyone's working in the office two or three days a week, you actually can have, you know, you can basically double the commutable radius, at least in terms of time, and have the same number of hours per week on the road for commuters. So you actually want a city that has more stuff to do because there will be more people living around that city with good paying white collar jobs. Like that's, that's sort of what I wondered about New York is like at one level, you know, dark age for office buildings. On the other hand, if you have, you know, ground floor retail space or restaurant space, you actually have a larger set of people who could conceivably have a reason to be in the city, you know, a couple of days a week and could have a reason to go out or have a, you know, splurge at a shopping trip or something. I believe that agglomeration and the benefits of agglomeration remain undefeated. That is, people generally want to be around other people. I don't believe the office is going away entirely for one. Uh, I also believe that people are social creatures and they want to be around other people. They want to go out. I think as long as there are young single people, uh, there will be a need for amenities downtown and people going into downtown for those amenities. I think what downtown is, is going to have to change. And a lot of cities are not prepared for that. I think many cities, you know, built their downtowns around a, around a car, around the car. And the idea that everyone is going to commute from all they do is basically commute from the suburbs, go into a parking garage, go out of the parking garage, go back home to the suburbs. I, I, I think that model of downtown is, is dead. I don't think you need those kind of buildings anymore. And I think you look at a lot of those buildings in Sunbelt cities and they're going to go away. I also think probably some cities are going to get hit really hard too that don't have the benefits of agglomeration in the way, you know, a New York has, for instance, um, a way even a Pittsburgh has. You know, they've turned into the hub for robotics and AI. And so if you want to work in robotics, because what Carnegie Mellon has done, et cetera, um, you know, Pittsburgh is one of the best places in the world to be. And so I think every city kind of needs to look at itself and say, what is my special sauce that is going to make me one of the top five cities in the world that you have to be in if you're doing X? What is that X? And if a city can't answer what that X is, it better have really good freaking weather or it's probably going away. So if you were the mayor of Dayton and 
you know, <laughs> you, you don't have the, the weather advantage. Maybe you have some agglomeration. I'm actually not super familiar with their local economy, but like, what, what would you be doing in that situation where you know that the, the downtown economic model has been seriously impaired? On the other hand, lots of people want to live in your city and they're willing to pay to live in the city. They're not, you know, they're, some of them will go away, but they're not all going away and there's still employers there. So like, what is, what is the prudent policy choice to make? Or is there just nothing on the menu? Like you can imagine things like, well, if you had great public transportation and it's safe and reliable and runs 24 seven and extends out to not just the current suburbs, but like future hypothetical suburbs. Well, now you could have a car light downtown that gets gradually redeveloped into, you know, nice mixed use, walkable urbanism, et cetera. But yeah, if you don't have the budget for, uh, for that first piece, then it gets hard. So yeah, is, is there anything they can do or should be doing differently? Yeah. So a couple of things, one, which is just literally like free money to pick up is you look at a lot of these cities, places that have suffered from severe underinvestment, that have declining populations, that don't have a very vibrant you know, tech community, for instance. And you say, as a real estate person, I'm like, but I bet I could go there and build something really cool. And they're not they're the, you know, I'm not going to face the same barriers I would face in other places. Right. That seems intuitive. Well, it's often wrong. Some of the worst zoning codes in America are these declining Rust Belt towns that have the most prescriptive, narrow zoning you could think of. And, you know, I could talk about the origins of zoning and why that is for a really, really long time. Basically, these are cities that uh, saw large influxes of African-Americans during the Great Migration. You couldn't use racial covenants to keep them out of certain neighborhoods. So people use zoning. Um, so they have not great zoning in many cases. Um, so just fixing your zoning, allowing mixed use, killing the setback requirements, allowing for narrower streets, things like that, just are free money to pick up. Because if someone wants to build in your town, you should make it easy. And so that is one obvious thing. Fix the zoning. But the broader thing, I mean, that, that alone is important, but I don't, I, I, it's, it's not going to solve a town that's in secular decline. What you got to do is think about what are my unique advantages? Is it I have a university? Is it I have a great hospital system? Is there some, you know, natural amenity? Uh, whatever it is. I mean, Bentonville, Arkansas, obviously, Walmart of all things. But it's not just Walmart. They also leaned into being the mountain biking capital of the world and built hundreds of miles of bike trails around the Ozarks. And they got that. They're not just Walmart. They're not just a company town now. They're also the mountain biking capital of the world. And then they used the Walton money and you know, partnered with that family to build crystal bridges. Now they probably have the best art museum not on a coast in the United States. And so you, you, you got to lean into that peakiness and think about, I mean, I gave the example of Pittsburgh earlier. You can think about smaller scale examples. Indianapolis. There was a great company called Exact Target started in Indianapolis 20, 25 years ago. When that founder exited and that company got big, a lot of their early employees went and started interesting email related businesses in Indianapolis. So now Indianapolis, if you want to build an email business, 
It's actually a great place to be because there's a ton of talent who really understands email. And oh, by the way, it's cheap and there's great schools. Taxes are low. So you can lean into some of that peakiness if you're a mayor. Interesting. So it's like the sort of the national champion model, but you want to highly, highly localize it. Well, it's one of the great things about tech is like, you know, you can do this stuff from anywhere. And you're going to see, I think, a lot of specific niches of tech start cropping up and maybe not the most predictable places, especially as New York and San Francisco continue to be insanely expensive and not the easiest places to buy a house and raise a family and all that. Um, you're going to see things like, oh, if you want to do email, well, you could be in San Francisco or you could be in New York or you could be in Indianapolis. Yeah, I think that makes that makes sense. Although, like, you know, I guess you always have winners and losers. And so there will be some cities where the thing they specialize in just turns out not to be as economically viable or not to have the same agglomeration effects. But I guess that is that is kind of the life cycle where you know, Detroit was this booming, extremely wealthy city in the 1950s and uh, is less so today. But other cities have have done better. You know, that that average is always people who are outperforming people who are underperforming. I mean, you can totally see the counterexamples in real time. So go back 10 years. It was unclear that Groupon was not going to be the next Amazon. A lot of people thought Groupon would be the next Amazon or Alibaba or whatever. And, you know, they were based in Chicago and they got to billions of dollars or whatever in valuation. Great group of talented people around the table there. There wasn't a huge generational wealth event there. It kind of went sideways. And then I, I, I don't even know what, ha what happened to Groupon. But um, things would have looked very different for Chicago had it become the next Alibaba. And suddenly there's a $200 billion anchor company and a dozen 10 to $20 billion companies started by early employees and a hundred startups started by engineers and other people who uh, spend some time at Groupon. So you can see these little like counterfactuals of like, well, that particular idea, that particular model didn't work out. If it had, I mean, Chicago is probably going to be fine, but if it had, things would look very different. What can local governments do to to encourage this? Like you look at those those backstories. I mean, you sort of like I guess there are some cases, you know, Amazon <clears throat> they chose a place where you no know, no sales tax and it's close to the wholesalers. So um and I guess with um with Microsoft, I think they they were thinking about um Boeing employee Boeing hiring lots of technical people and going through lots of layoffs. So there'd be easy, you know, affordable engineering talent. Um so like it seems like sometimes the the reason that these cities become what they become is partly partly that they always had the potential and then partly that there was just some random lucky break you know shockley wants to take care of his mom so he goes back home home turns out to be the future of silicon valley and the rest is is history um so yeah how how do people nudge those contingencies or is it just like you want to avoid doing you know you want to avoid having the zoning rules that make it so that that, uh, you know, Bezos crosses your city off his list. But other than that, you have to wait for someone to actually show up. Well, I would first of all say that as a elected official of a city government, you are not a VC and you should not be trying to pick winners. And I think when, you know, I'm thinking a particular mayor of Miami tried to pick 
winners industry-wise, I don't know. It seems like a quick way to kind of a clown yourself. I was listening to an interview the other day with a economic development officer of a very successful Southern market who has recruited a lot of companies, a lot of tech companies. And he said, you know what I spend most of my time doing? I spend most of my time convincing the spouses of high-growth companies, CEOs of high-growth companies, that they can find the same cultural amenities in our city that they can in San Francisco or Seattle or New York. And so my point there is that it's important for cities to be great places to live. And I think so many cities kind of forget that, like quality of life and enjoyment piece. That like, great, you can have a good tax policy, you can have good zoning policies. Like all of that is kind of table stakes. But at the end of the day, there's going to be an executive, a founder of a company that is growing 200% year over year that says, oh my God, I have to get out of San Francisco. Do I go to Houston, Austin, Birmingham, Charlotte? And what is their fear? Their fear is schools aren't going to be good. There's not going to be anything to do on the weekend. It might be unsafe. You have to address those questions. And I think you know, one of the flaws of a lot of coastal cities is they've sort of given up the mantle of, you know, they are safe places to live. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of the concern about San Francisco gets a little overblown, but I think it does offer an opportunity to Sunbelt cities to offer an alternative to that. You mentioned, Brad, that cities shouldn't think like VCs, but let's pretend we are thinking like a VC for a moment. If you were running Metaprop or any of these, or, you know, uh, Football, any of these real estate prop tech firms, what would be your request for startups or, or where would you be most excited to, in, uh, to be investing at, the, at this moment? It's a big question. There's a lot of exciting things happening in real estate right now. I think one thing I'm very bullish on is the role of data. Um, you look at a lot of other industries and the role that data plays, it plays a central, central role. On the flip side, in real estate, it's still like, a lot of decisions based on hunch, based on an analyst doing comps in an Excel spreadsheet. There's a lot of that. And if you look at the companies that have done really well and captured big market share from a tech perspective in real estate, they've often done it on the backs of data and analysis. So you look at like Yieldstar, LRO, revenue management platforms, you know, $400 million exit 10 years ago, uh, to real page, you know, that is the kind of thing we need more of is how do you use data out there in the market? You know, some of the more interesting models I've been tracking recently are using data from other sources like credit card data, e-commerce data pr to predict what neighborhoods, what areas are emerging and can be the next Jed Walentis to tie it together to say, hey, there's a lot of interesting things happening in these census blocks in this zip code. Let's let's make some bets there. You you also had a, a post that relevant to what you just said around what real estate should learn from other industries uh, and, and, you know, some things that they should learn and some things that are sort of unique to real estate that maybe they sh shouldn't learn. Can, can you unpack uh, some, some of the major points from the post? Yeah, so I made a couple of points around just, frankly, better marketing. You know, there's a lot of techniques that are used in e-commerce, for-profit education that I think real estate would would really benefit from, from 
you know, in, using inside sales teams to retargeting better email marketing, things like that. Things that tech founders have been doing for a long time, but haven't really made their way in a robust way into real estate. One of the other big misnomers uh, about real estate is this idea that the big myth about real estate is that real estate is powerful from a government rob lobbying regulatory standpoint. <laughs> when in fact, it's like you look at other industries, agriculture, you look at entertainment, you know, those industries have incredibly powerful lobbies. I mean, agriculture gets the dumbest corn subsidies in the world passed through Congress and the Senate every year. Uh, real estate as an industry, despite a massive housing crisis, to spend, despite a massive need for what real estate produces, just struggles to avoid getting laws passed that do nothing but hamstring housing production. So I think one thing real estate could learn from other industries is a lot of techniques and skills around PR and lobbying from industries like agriculture and entertainment. So that's another. There are other things that I think would, are, are a lot tougher to adapt. Uh, one is, uh, the, I hear a lot, people building real estate brands, like brands of apartment buildings, brands of offices. Not saying it's impossible. It has been done in some forms, but it's really, really tough because people only move you know, once every two and a half years they often look for a physical space in a certain location at a certain price. They are, they're not used to looking for brands. Um, it's a very, very tough problem to crack, at least outside of hospitality. Yeah, it seems like if you think of big real estate brands where you sort of you know roughly what you're getting into if you go to a new city and see that brand on a building, like the two that come to mind are Trump and WeWork. And like... In both cases, you know, pretty consistent experience. You've got the the fake wood panels that we work. You've got the fake gold at all Trump establishments. But yeah, it seems like it's hard to make the actual brand something that people connect to. And it also seems like real estate it attracts people who, um, like, I guess, like the the fastest growing companies will be run by people who are like flamboyant. Is maybe like the the very neutral term for it. And so you'll sometimes have someone where. They're famous and beloved, and then they have this crash and burn. And because they were so risk tolerant, and that was part of what people loved about them, the the amount of money that they have on their balance sheet at the time when things start falling apart is is pretty substantial. So, yeah, the brand thing the brand thing gets uh, very very tricky to figure out, especially because you know if you're like with some products, you do continuously make the decision to buy it. So you continuously care about the brand. You know, people have their preference of do they like Coke, do they like Pepsi? And they're always choosing. And if there's a menu, they will they will choose their preferred brand from that menu. But then with real estate, you're you're locked in for the the duration of your lease. And six months in, you know, how like how good does the building have to be for you to say, I'm so glad that I chose, you know, this brand over somebody else's brand? Like Many, you know, long after the purchasing decision, are you still thinking that? Or is it more like, well, this, this, this helped. There was like, it was worth it to pay this small premium to know you're getting exactly what you hoped for, but you're not going to always be just hit over the head with how great this is and how distinct it is from everything else. It, it's also a question of, is it even a good thing to be offering that consistent brand and experience across locations? And this is a big debate within the hospitality industry. So, when I'm going to Los Angeles, do I want the same look and feel of a space that I get in Boston or London or Dubai? Or do I want something that 
feels like I'm in Los Angeles. So it's a little bit of uh, it's it's not as obvious that brands should be consistent. And hospitality operators have come up with ways to, to to solve for this. I mean, focusing on, you know, the rewards layer, like, you know, Starwood, uh, preferred guest, as opposed to the look and feel of every space, focusing on a brand standard, uh, as opposed to, you know, having a completely consistent lobby and material palette in every space. So there, there are ways to kind of get around this, but it's, it's less obvious than it is with, uh, say, you know, fashion or retail or something like that, where, you know, you walk into a Zara, you you want the same Zara pretty much in every place. I want to be mindful of uh, of, of time. Burn in any last reactions? Otherwise, maybe we'll uh, we'll, we'll wrap here. No, I, I thought was, this was a, a fun discussion. And it, it's an asset class where you just, by definition, your capital is immobile. Like if you if you bought that building in Midtown, you own a building in Midtown, regardless of where you'd like it to be instead. Um, and yeah, it's also, you know, it's a, it's a big enough asset class and a levered enough asset class that problems in real estate can turn into systemic problems. On the other hand, you know, we have we have more people than we had before the pandemic. They all need somewhere to live. They all need somewhere to work. So it feels like the the total amount of square footage that we need has only increased and people do tend to just consume more square footage over time. And then, um, yeah, the, the relative value of some of those square feet has has changed. And if they're all funded, you know, 80 to 90 percent with debt, then those relative value trend changes can can have a pretty big impact. But yeah, it seems like it seems like a space where it felt I think it felt to me in the summer of 2020, like we have more answers by now. Like we would know if everything just completely came back to normal once everyone was vaccinated or if no, that the era of the big city is over. We are all digital nomads now. We can live in any any place, any time zone, anywhere. Um, somehow we sort of reverted to more suburban life, but slightly and then came back to the office, but half-heartedly and kind of depends on which industry we're in as to whether or not we actually do that. So it feels like um, in some ways the uncertainty has has gone up because we would have expected more things to get resolved by now. A hundred percent. There's still a lot of unanswered questions. I would note we're talking about a lot of this from the perspective of the United States. You go outside the United States to Europe or Asia, people are back in the office. The question has been answered for everywhere outside the US and Canada. And I think the interesting question is not, you know, necessarily, okay, well, what, what, what is the final answer we'll come to, but why is the US different? And why has the US gone down this very, very, I would say, circuitous path of hybrid, remote work, suburbanization, in a way that you went to London in 2021, mid-2021, people are going back in the office. And that's only continued, and it's pretty much back to pre-pandemic norms. And why the U.S. has been different, I think that's a big and fundamental question that no one's really answered yet. Well, uh, that's a good place to good place to wrap. The the newsletter and podcast is, is thesis-driven. We'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. We're excited to be partnering on it. Brad, thanks so much for, for coming on The Riff and, uh, and discussing with us. Totally. Thanks so much for having me here. Yeah, this was really fun. Thanks for listening to The Riff. Please go follow and subscribe, give us five stars, and check out Burns' excellent newsletter, The Diff, if you haven't already. 